Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Seeds and Pushing Too Hard. And I've got Harold Bronson here to talk about his life and time in music. He's got an excellent book out, Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. He's got so many stories, and we'll discuss the selection today. I've chosen the Seeds because that was one of the first groups, wasn't it, Harold, that you saw when you were at high school, wasn't it? Yes. It's uh, interesting when you're... A young music fan, you're less discerning, but nonetheless, the seeds were big in Los Angeles. So when you're a kid, again, from an American perspective, whatever you hear on the radio, you know, those are the big hits to you. You don't really know about regional radio or that some records are played in some cities and not in others. So the seeds were much bigger in Los Angeles than they were nationally. But so, yeah, among the first concerts I went to, and I thought that they were really good in part because they sounded like the record. Because, you know, you're a, a fan of the music. And then when it sounds like the the record, that you know, it's like Nirvana. It's like, this is really great. And Sky Saxon was at times kind of silly in what he was doing, but he was very charismatic. So anyway, it made a big impression on me. I thought they were great. So one of the reasons why I put that in the book and some of the other artists is that there's no record of them having been reviewed. You can't read anything on the seeds or the music machine or some of the other artists. They will, what were they like in concert? There's nothing that you can read on it. So that was so part of this is, you know, documenting aspects of rock history. I've read that this um, that time has come today. Your your diaries from nineteen sixty seven to two thousand seventy is kind of part of a trilogy of books that you've done. You've done the Rhino Record story about a decade ago, and five years on from that, you had My British Invasion. So, is there a thread through these books or themes? Well, you know, it's interesting. The only book that I was thinking at the time when I was writing the Rhino Record story was just that book, because I felt that. Um, if I didn't capture the history of the label, it would be lost. And I was only thinking one book, but then kind of on when I was in the long process of um, production and you're waiting for it to be scheduled. And then I realized um, well, I was a big fan of the British invasion. And um, in the 1970s, I interviewed a lot of these people when they were no longer happening and I got their stories. And, you know, there's lots of books on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who, but not Herman's Hermits or the Trogs or the Spencer Davis group. So it kind of coalesced. And then I had um, three chapters that because of length, I left out of the Rhino book. So, for instance, um, we reissued the RCA Masters uh, that the Kinks had done in the early 70s and dealing with Ray and Larry Page, and you know, not the most fluid uh, experience, but there was a chapter on the Kinks I left out. Uh, I was a big Dave Clark Five fan, 
uh, for Rhino. I wanted to put out, you know, do a catalog deal and for various reasons he didn't do it and it was a real struggle. So there's a Dave Clark five chapter in there. And uh, so it kind of evolved from there. So that was, again, my British invasion, only thinking of the one book. And then after it was over, I was thinking there's all of these other people I interacted with, either as a journalist or at Rhino. And uh, I just thought that, uh, you know, there was enough for another book. So I was able to put it together and by putting it into diary form. Whatever happened the previous day doesn't necessarily relate to the next day, unlike the other two books where you, you know, you had kind of themes that you had to conform to. And it does shine a light on quite a lot of stories and insights into industry that I wasn't familiar with. And your very first interview when you were at uh, UCLA and, and the student newspaper there, that's quite a first interview. Maurice Skibb of the Bee Gees. I was a big Bee Gees fan. And um, prior to that, I had done a number of record reviews for the paper. But the call came in to, and the editor said, Morris Gibb is in town. Do you want to interview him? And of course. And I mean, I remember vividly because I hadn't done any interviews. I didn't have a cassette machine. Maybe I bought one about a year later or so. And I had a reel-to-reel machine because of I having had my band and being into, you know, recording. And I remember it was it was heavy and I was lugging it up this incline to the uh, uh the public relations agency. And uh yeah, I thought. Morris was just a really charming guy. I could ask him about anything, the early Bee Gees, the influence, the Odessa record, which I thought was a great record. And also the fact that the Bee Gees were just down to him and Barry. And how did that happen? So I got all that stuff. And then kind of towards the end, he goes, um, oh, I'm uh, really pleased that uh, the Beatles, Abbey Road is a big hit because he played bass on a couple songs polythene pam and mean mr mustard and i'm thinking paul mccartney is a great bass player why would he want somebody else to play bass on a beatles record and then he goes oh and i'm really happy that something is a is a big hit because i played the lead guitar on it and of course i'm thinking to myself why would george harrison have somebody else play lead guitar so I was questioning it in my mind, but I mean, it was my first interview and here's like this big rock star to me. I wasn't going to tell him you're wrong or question it. So when I wrote up the article originally for the UCLA paper, I did not put that in. But anyway, it was like, you know, a first interview. I was kind of as much as I enjoyed it, found him really charming. I was kind of taken aback a little bit. So how long were you writing for while you were a student at UCLA? Well, that was about um, three to four years. But while I was there, I be- was good enough to actually write for some of the rock magazines like Rolling Stone and Rock and a few of the others. And the idea was instead of having a summer job to earn money to, you know, for the rest of the year, rather than doing that, I was able to make you know, the equivalent amount of money by writing about rock and roll and not having to get you know, a job. That's one of the interesting things about the book as well, is that the number of artists that you were interviewing while they were active, and then by the time of Rhino, things started coming back and you were involved with the groups. Yeah, that was a nice, uh, that was nice. So I could have made more money writing in my 20s 
if I was more open to certain artists that I didn't really care that much about, like right. Santana or the Almond Brothers. Now, it's not to say that I don't have their records in my collection, but as far as who do you want to speak to? So if, you know, if Man for Nan was coming into town with Chapter 3, with him and Mike Hug, that's who I wanted to interview, people whose music that I was more interested in yeah. or passionate about. And, of course, that looped back later at Rhino when we started to get into reissuing, the advantage for me was because I'd met a lot of these people, I wasn't sort of in awe of them as I was trying to put this together at Rhino. I felt you know more comfortable with dealing with rock stars. So that was good. And secondly, in some cases, like um, we put out a best of the Spencer Davis group because one wasn't currently in, in print and we licensed it from in the U.S. United Artists. But I had done a great interview with Spencer in 1971, and I used that for the liner notes, and I actually credited Spencer because it was everything that he said. By the way, I have to say that Spencer, you know, here or there on an ongoing basis, you know, I would run into him. We were friendly. We would see each other. He came to my house for a party, and I even spoke to him within on phone within the year before he died. So I was... uh you know, in touch with him. So, uh, yeah, so there was a nice familiarity about that. Badfinger, one of those examples. And May 1971, you spoke to all four members, and it was interesting reading your diary of that first interview with them, that even then there seemed to be slight business issues or things that they weren't happy with, and that tragically played out later on as well. Yeah, you know, I I love Badfinger. That was my first assignment for Rolling Stone when Ben Fong Torres, the editor, called the Daily Bruin office and spoke to my editor and said, is there anybody down there, you know, Badfinger are coming to town. So um, they played the um, Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and I interviewed them at the Continental Hyatt House. And, you know, I just thought that they were really nice guys. And even then, I sensed the difficulty you know, they were talking about how that they had to go on this tour that they didn't feel like they really wanted to. They wanted to finish the album they started recording, but financially they had to do it. And then I saw them when they came to Los Angeles the following year, February 1972. I spent some time with them. I got to know them better. I really uh, connected with um, Pete Ham. And um, that summer when I came to London, they said to look them up. So I, they were in the Golders Green area. So I spent some time with them. I remember it because the Olympics were on TV. And also um, the color TV, it was much better than in America. And I was watching it at their house. So I went with Tom and Joey into Tom's Porsche that he bought with the royalties from Harry Nelson's recording Without You. And um, we went to Apple and because they were they were actually rehearsing, breaking in a new drummer, which was like nobody really knew at the time. And ultimately, they decided to not have a new drummer and stick with Mike Gibbons. And then um, Pete shows up, showed up a little bit later. He was dressed really nice in a nice white suit because he, he had been attending a wedding. Basically, as far as my book goes, a lot of it is what are the stories behind the hits? from the artists, from the producers, from the songwriters, you know, given my perspective with them. 
But in some cases where I got to know some of these people, like the members of Badfinger or the members of the Monkees or, uh, you know, Howard Kalin and Mark Volman, Flo and Eddie from the Turtles, you know, what were these people like as people? What was it like to spend time with them? That's part of the diary as well. And over 30 years ago, loving the, the Apple material, you reached out to Neil Aspinall and tried to license some of that Apple material for non-Beatles artists. And I don't think that that worked out, but then you had the idea to create the Best of Bad Thing of Volume 2, which I think was the Warner Brothers material. Yeah, I sent a letter to Neil Aspinall offering an advance against royalties of half a million dollars for the U.S. rights to all the Apple stuff, excluding the Beatles. And I thought it was like a really substantial offer. I never even got the courtesy of a reply. But nonetheless, I figured that at a certain point, Apple would be putting out a Best of Badfinger and Warner Brothers. They did three albums, two of them at that point released, one unreleased. So I thought, why don't I put out a Best of Badfinger Volume 2, which I actually think came out before Apple's volume one. And there's a lot of good material on the Warner album. And I was able to, I, you know, I tell the story of the difficulty I had in trying to license the masters from the unreleased album. But I thought a lot of times, Rhino, what we tried to do is what, what can we do to give people something extra? We're big music fans. What would music fans like? And so I picked the four best songs from that third album that had never been released to include on our best of volume two fantastic well let's play one of those extra tracks meanwhile back at the ranch should i smoke
So next, some of these artists have huge names in, in the peak period, and, and one of those is uh, Black Sabbath. So take us back to 1972, where you interviewed uh, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne, and, and the classic lineup. Yeah, so the call came in at the Daily Bruin office. Uh, you know, they were in town recording their fourth album. It was one of those things where I was finished with my finals, and it's, I wasn't doing much. So I said, okay. So... Um, they were living north of UCLA. They were um, renting a mansion. It was owned by John DuPont, who was one of the heirs of the DuPont fortune. And there was a movie about eight or 10 years ago. He was really into wrestling. And he would, you know, it's like a notorious uh, movie. Steve Carell played him and, you know, he murdered. And But anyway, this was the guy who owned the house. So I interviewed, um, they were around the pool that afternoon, and Ozzy was by the uh, the beach house. And I just really liked him. 
you know, had a, you know, sense of humor and he was, anyway, I think we really connected because he said, oh, well, we're recording tonight at the record plant. Why don't you come by? So I went to the record plant to uh, watch them record Snowblind. And I remember the decor of the record plant. It was almost like a pop art decor. I describe it in the book. And also he had, you know, rather than a lyric sheet, he had like a hardbound book, you know, that you could write in. And that's what he was reading his lyrics from. But he was, you know, singing flat and he was probably high on something, you know, reading about it, you know, later they were, you know, had a serious mounds of cocaine that they were as part of that. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, we were in the studio, the other guys were there, you know, we, we could chat with them and, you know, during the, anyway, it was just a really nice moment. Amazing to think as well, student newspaper. So you got to access similar status acts as you did for Rolling Stone. Well, the UCLA Daily Bruin, um, there were probably about 30,000 students at the time. So it was sizable. And you have to think these were, you know, young people, a lot of whom were, you know, rock and roll fans. Not everybody did we get a call on, but it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a major source in Los Angeles. And you mentioned earlier about often focusing on bands you liked and ELO, the Electric Light Orchestra in 1973 in, in the US, weren't a big act, obviously had the legacy of The Move. Right. But over in the States, The Move, again, weren't a big act. But understand that you had had contact with Bev Bevin anyhow? Yeah. So um, the way that happened was um, The Move never charted a single in the US. So they were, for the most part, unknown unless you were like, you know, hip or a music writer. And um, at the Daily Bruin, my first editor, John Mendelssohn, who, you know, many people know from his great yeah. uh, writing about music in the 70s and in 80s. And then uh, Jim Bickhart, the subsequent editor, they were big. They were very hip music tastes and they were into the move. So they would turn me and other writers on to people like that or Fairport Convention, or other artists that really weren't well-known in the U.S. So in getting the move records, some that I could get, I wrote a, a big thing on them in uh, the Daily Bruin, probably around the, the transition into the Electric Light Orchestra. You know, I guess Bev Bevan got a copy of it in England, and so he wrote me a letter. And then so kind of a relationship started from there. So when he you know, he would send me records on occasion or he came to the U.S. You know, I saw him, I interviewed him and Jeff. And uh, again, it was a, a really a great relation. And also, you know, I liked the music, but more to the point, they were a great band live because the uh, string players, whether it was the uh, the bass fiddle or the violin or, you know, Mick Kaminsky and people like that, you know, running around the stage. I mean, they were really good musically, really tight. And uh, so I saw them, you know, quite a few times. And so basically, I was an electric light orchestra fan and, you know, would interview them here or there. Well, let's hear a live version of Rollover Beethoven by Electric Light Orchestra from that period when they were in the US in June 1973 for the first time. <laughs>
So now we have Mogan, David and his winos, Beauty Queen. That was your group, wasn't it? I had a, uh, a group at uh, UCLA. Again, you know, uh, we love music and that uh, formed primarily of writers for the music section or the entertainment section at the Daily Bruin. And, you know, we could all play. This was uh, set 1972-73. We did play out a little bit, but it was really before the uh, independent rock club boom that started, you know, towards the end of the 70s. So there were very few places to play. Let me give you an example. The Whiskey A Go-Go and the Troubadour were big music venues, big clubs in Los Angeles. But the way they worked a lot is that if an artist signed to a label would perform there, the label would commit to buying a certain amount of tickets that they would give to the press or to radio or to retailers. We didn't have that connection. So, you know, they, normally they wouldn't book us because we wouldn't be able to bring tickets that a record company. So there are very few places to play, but we did play a little bit. And, um, you know, I was interested in recording. So Beauty Queen, I came up with a set of lyrics. A girl that I would that I had dated maybe a year previously told me about the plight of her sister, who was actually a beauty queen, who married this man 15 years older, and she was unhappy. So whatever she told me, it just kind of stuck with me. And I put that into the lyrics in the song. So it's actually this true story that, you know, her sister told me. And I gave it to, uh, you know, one of the other members of the Winos. And I said, uh, here, you know, make this sound like a Yardbird song. So that's the origin of uh, Beauty Queen. So I had uh, a little bit before the DIY in the, you know, the later part of the 60s, I realized you can go to a pressing plant and give them, they'll take your money as, as much as anybody else's. So at that point, I had done two singles on my own label. And this was to be the A side of the third single. But the second single didn't sell as well as the first one. So I did that uh, instead of putting out as a single, I incorporated into like a history of the band album, which I called it Savage Young Winos because there was this exploitive Beatles album that came out in 1964 called Savage Young Beatles. And the picture of them was dressed in leather from Hamburg, like the first photo session they did. So we borrowed leather jackets to mimic. So basically, the winos were, at one point, serious as far as rock and roll goes, but there was also the humor aspect that not everybody got. So, for instance, on the album, we did um, like a Live at Leeds type of elaborate packaging, but we made fun of the concept. So Paul Rappaport, the guitar player, we had his failed music test from UCLA. So, you know, it's kind of like rather than saying, oh, you know, we're important and here's our artifacts, we made fun of ourselves. So that was probably the first DIY punk album to to however many people, you know, know about it or not. So when did you start managing the Rhino Records shop? Well, I started working there in um, April 1974. And then um, probably, uh, you know, within the, the year I became manager of the store, and because I'd had experience, you know, pressing my own records, I said to Richard Foos, um, hey, we could have fun. Let's do, you know, our own label. 
And so in the back room of the store, there was no overhead. There was no rent. There was no phones. You know, the expenses were all covered by the store. So it was just like the pressing and anything recording or otherwise that we did that. So we did a number of singles. And then in, in one year, we experimented with, al- with albums. And we did well enough so that at the end of 1978, Richard and I, Richard sold the store. And then the two of us as partners went in to formalize the label in another location. One of the great things of Rhino Records, particularly in those early years, was that you focused on artists from a, a decade or so earlier that the major labels in some way were neglecting or not making the most of it because they were focusing on the big acts of the time, Fleetwood Mac or whoever. One of those groups that you had a long association with was the Turtles, wasn't it? And they you got licensing from White Whale, is that right? Okay, so most artists that we would license from it was owned by a record company or a record company that bought other record companies. So, for instance, our first rock best of album was Best of Love and ended up having a long, like a 20-year relationship with Arthur Lee. But um, that came out on Elektra. And at that point, that was part of Warner Music. So we licensed it from Warner's. Yeah. So in the case of the Turtles, they were on a 
small independent label in the U.S. called White Whale. At a certain point, White Whale was deficient in paying them royalties. The turtles sued White Whale as part of the settlement. They got the rights back to their masters. On a different level, when we reissued the Four Seasons, at that point, we licensed them directly from the Four Seasons. So, you know, that didn't happen that often. But the good thing about it is you knew that you were paying the artist's royalties directly, however fairly or not they might have divvied it up over the people who, you know, were also in the band. So um, the Turtles were from Westchester, an area in Los Angeles where the Los Angeles International Airport is from. So they were, you know, a bit older than me, but I knew a couple of their brothers. And so there was like that familiarity. And also I had done a um, big interview with Howard Kalin for Rolling Stone. Uh, this was in 1971. It was like one of the best interviews I ever uh, did. He was just uh, a great person, you know, smart, lots of humor. And so, you know, again, familiarity with me. So I went to them in the early days of the label and said that I wanted to, you know, license something from them. At least, you know, they knew who I was and they, they felt good about taking a chance on me. And again, that was the start of a long relationship. And you also interviewed Alan Gordon, who co-wrote quite a number of their hits as well, including Happy Together, of course. Alan Gordon and Gary Bonner were in a band similar to the Love and Spoonful that played Greenwich Village, you know, but it was a, um, an unsuccessful band, The Magicians, and, um, but they were unsuccessful. But then as songwriters, um, Happy Together was a song that they wrote, but nobody recorded. People kept turning it down because they had no track record. But then the Turtles heard something in it that nobody else did. Their bass player at the time, Chip Douglas, who later produced The Monkees and Linda Ronstadt and you know, proved himself as being a, an excellent producer, he helped to arrange it. And so basically, you know, they recorded it. That was one of those uh, records that just really had magic. And it was a big hit. And then the Turtles recorded three other of Bonner and Gordon's songs that became uh, hits. One song, um, She'd Rather Be With Me, actually did better on the UK charts than Happy Together. And um, one of the songs the Turtles rejected, Celebrity Ball, was a big hit in the US, Celebrate. So anyway, um, Alan Gordon is a real character. He used to be the drummer in The Magicians. So what's the story behind the hits? So he told me the story about Happy Together, and I put that in. And um, you know that was part of like uh, what I tried to do in Time Has Come Today, where I could like with um, P.F. Sloan getting the story behind you know his hits. And so songwriters, you know whether they were artists of note or not, you know, were just really important to these great records that we all love. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, and lose my mind. Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together.
lost the dice It had to be The only one for me is you And you for me So happy together the dice it had to be the only one for me is you and you for me so happy together It had to be The only one for me is you And you for me So happy together So happy together And how is the weather So happy together We're happy together So happy The Monkeys, an act absolutely pivotal in, in Rhino's history. And you interviewed Mickey Dolenz and David Jones when they were in Dolenz, Jones, Boyce and Hart. Yes, well, I mean, before that, um, in the early 70s, I had um, interviewed Michael Nesmith because I was really curious about what he was doing with the first national band and also um, Mickey Dolenz and how that came about is there was a magazine called Coast FM and Fine Arts, which dealt with music, but also stereo equipment and sound. And so again, in the early, early 70s, the monkeys, you know, after the initial run on nighttime TV, it was shown Saturday mornings. So the monkeys to like a new set of, you know, younger fans, uh, they were getting like uh, a thousand fan letters a week. You know, again, you have to think the monkeys didn't exist as an entity. And these young kids who were watching it thought that what they were seeing, that it wasn't like, oh, these are four and five years old TV shows. They were experiencing them as, hey, let me write Davey a fan letter type of thing. Yeah. So he had me, he knew I was a big monkeys fan. He had me write up this big article overview, you know, interviewing the two of them. And um, for many years, it was before we re started redoing our reissues, it was like the definitive source material, if you could track it down and wanted to know about the monkeys. So again, there was familiarity with me because, you know, I, you know, I, because I'd met them before. And when Rhino started to uh, reissue some of this, you know, they were on board, they knew me and, you know, that helped the process. But anyway, prior to Rhino, Dolan's Jones, Boyce and Hart, and they toured. They did extremely well. Uh, the uh, studio album they put out on Capitol here didn't do particularly well. But, um, you know, again, just being in the room with those guys and, you know, it's just uh, it's just really a special moment. But, you know, it was like, you know, aside from like, what, you know, what have you been doing and talking to each, each of them? You know, then the humor came out 
So again, this is a entry in the book, but um, Davy starts talking about how um, he's listed in the phone book, not as Davy Jones, but as Caesar Salad. And of course, you know, Caesar being a first name. And of course, in the phone book, alphabetically, you know, it's the last name first. So it would be Salad, comma, Caesar. But the other thing is he started like talking to me about a little bit of the financial stuff, which I didn't ask him anything about. But, the, you know, on Magic Mountain, we drew, you know, more people on this weekend and then we get so much here and there. And he's going into all this stuff. And I'm like, why is he doing that? I don't know. But then the kind of the kicker is that um, as we left the office building, the two of us left together because we were parked you know, close to each other. And as he got to his car, he, he, he was driving like a battered yellow Volkswagen. And I was thinking, you know, over like two or three years in the monkeys, this guy made well over a million dollars. And he's driving this battered car. And it was like, really made an impression. Like, how did that happen? Was it the 1980s where yourself and Rhino bought the monkeys lock, stock and barrel other than the, the showing of the TV shows? The reissues and the treatment of the catalogue as well was giving it what it deserved. Well, originally with the monkeys, we did um, rare material, you know, that had been left off of albums or unreleased. We did a picture disc, which was really nice. And then because of that, again, uh, familiarity through the record label, um, we licensed all the original albums. And then when the monkeys revival hit in America, 1986, 1987, we charted, I think, eight of their albums were on the charts at one time, which I think previously the only other group that had done that was Pink Floyd. Yeah. And then we did a new album with them, uh, 1987, Pool It. They wanted to do a new album. So again, we were licensees. And then at a certain point, the original producers, Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson, got the rights back. And we were able to buy the rights from them. So instead of being licensees, we became owners. I think that happened in 1994, I think. And then um, I spearheaded doing a lot of the uh, imaginative reissues in the movies and stuff. So that, so for instance, that's uh, two chapters in the Rhino Record Store.
Lee is an artist who comes up repeatedly in Time Has Come Today over two decades. And you mentioned it earlier, the collaboration on, was it the Love Best of first of all? And then there's a really interesting passage, I think, from 1981, where you were collaborating on an Affili album for Rhino. Again, we uh, talked earlier about, you know, regional artists. So Love were big in Los Angeles, inconsistently elsewhere. But the problem with Arthur Lee is he didn't want to tour outside of California because he, part of it was, I think, insecurity. Like, you know, we're so well received in LA. Why do I want to risk it and go somewhere else like Chicago or New York? How am I going to be received? And then I think a little bit later, it got into not being, not wanting to be too far away from their local drug connections, you know, but their uh, music overall, overall, and especially the first three love albums are just, you know, really great albums. So, um, Originally, we reissued, and then um, at a certain point, Arthur had licensed four of his tracks to a lowlife who like took him and made deals, and he didn't see any of the money. So I said to Arthur, well, look, why don't we take those four tracks and put them on a Rhino album? Why don't we take the best of the other tapes you have, and then I'll give you a budget for four new tracks. So the idea is... This way, he'll make some money from those, you know, four tracks he got ripped off on and the other tracks. And he's never, so let's call it the Arthur Lee album. It came out, uh, you know, really well. Obviously, some tracks are better than others. And then, you know, subsequently, we did other things with Arthur licensing us things. So it was a long, it was a, you know, relationship of a long duration, including in the uh, 90s. The uh, Love Anthology, which is a really nice double CD for people who have it or can still track it down. That material from the Arthur Lee album just over 40 years ago is 
it's not as dated as some of a 60s artist seven and, and seven is being an example it's it's different to the original but it's not washed with simps or drum machines or anything it's still got that the essence of what it made it great 15 years or so before you know that's a really good point you're so right about that so um seven and seven is which he does a slower version of so I was in the studio when uh, MTV came to do a segment as he was lip syncing it and slowed down. I could understand the lyrics more. And, you know, and then I could always ask Arthur, well, uh, you know, what does this mean? When I was a boy, I used to find times I'd be a man. I'd sit inside a bottle and pretend that I was in a can in my lonely mind. I my mind in an ice cream cone. So ice cream cone refers to when he would be as a young person reprimanded by his parents, he would have to stand in the corner and wear a dunce cap, you know, which was a cone. So that's the ice cream cone. One of the um, most interesting lines is trapped inside a night, but I'm a day. Well, what does that mean? Well, his um, one of his uh, grandparents was white. So he was basically, he was light-skinned. He was still, you know, considered black, but he was, you know, light-skinned, but trapped inside a night, meaning the color of his skin, but I'm a day. So a lot, I mean, as as much as he was into R&B and soul music, his tastes also responded to a lot of the artists of, you know, like the British invasion, like, you know, the zombies and Manfred Mann recording My Little Red Book, a cover of theirs. But, you know, where, you know, most black people, he was just a great lyricist. And um, those are some of those in that song. And you were still in touch in the, the last decade of his, his life as well. Well, at a certain point, um, you know, I mean, Arthur, it was so frustrating, some of the things he did. And also um, because at various times he would like sabotage his career, which I gave give a couple examples in the book. But at one point, he did something stupid, and he was arrested, and uh, his lawyer asked me for some bail money, so I funded bail money to him. And, you know, uh, at a certain point, I don't know, a year or so later, you know, he did pay me back. But um, the most frustrating example is when he was performing uh, the album Forever Changes, one of my top five albums at Royce Hall at UCLA. I think this was in 2002. And there was a little string section and Johnny Eccles was going to come in and play, you know, later on. It's like a special moment. And Arthur, either he drank too much or something, or he freaked out. But this was like the most prestigious gig of his entire life. And he blew it. And he was just gave a very, you know, poor performance because of his voice. And it was just, it was so bad. I wanted my money back, not that I asked for my money back, but I just, you know, felt frustrated as a fan because, you know, wanting him to be successful and get the accolades, you know, he's getting a lot of attention at that point and he just blew it. Oh man, I'd 
sit inside a bottle and pretend that I was in a can. In my lonely room, I sit my mind in an ice cream cone. You can throw me if you wanna, cause I'm a phone and I go oop. One of the amazing things as well that time has come today is drew attention to material that I wasn't familiar with. And again, we were talking about tracks recorded in the 1980s that don't date. And this is one of them, The Honeys, Go Away Boy. I think it does stem originally from the mid-60s. The Honeys being a group that's extremely strong association with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And in the early 80s, you were involved with recording a new Honeys album. The mission at Rhino and also with the books that I write is to turn people on to great music that they you know, haven't heard or maybe remind them of great music that they always liked. They haven't played in a while. So um, uh, we were approached about doing a new album with the Honeys and the Honeys um, were a vocal group who, uh, as you mentioned, most strongly associated with the Beach Boys and did some solo work and sang on some Jan and Dean records. But the main interest there was one of the honeys, Marilyn, married Brian. So she's more known as, you know, Marilyn Wilson, her sister, Diane Ravel, and then Ginger Blake, who was a good uh, session singer. She sang, for instance, on Beggar's Banquet out here, which was, you know, vocals completed in Los Angeles. So um, she was their cousins. So um, I think, uh, you know, for a relatively low budget record, it's a great sounding record. There's uh, uh, certain um, performers on there who've recorded, uh, um, you know, other things. But the point is, um, Go Away Boy was a song that Marilyn always loved. Brian wrote it, I think, 
you know, 1965, but it was never finished. So she brought it to us. She played it for us and uh, just we thought it was great. I think the Honeys uh, finished off the lyrics and one of the producers, uh, Lou Nacton, he wrote a bridge. It just turned out great. And I think the whole record's a great record. But one of the mysteries to me is that such a good song, I don't understand how somebody more of a note didn't pick up on it and record it. Anyway, it's there on the record. In the uh, CD era that came out on uh, in Japan on CD. It shows how great a song that is, and it's a piece of work that deserves a much wider airing. I agree, but to kind of show you what our commitment was to getting this music out there. So even though the record didn't sell that well, I'm sure we lost money on it, the album that um, Marilyn and her sister Diane had done, I think it was 1971 as Spring that Brian Wilson produced, that's a really good album. There's lots of really good tracks on it, and Marilyn had got the rights back to it. So again, a lot of our motivation was this is great music. It needs to be out there. And whether we make money on it or not, or whether we even lose money, it's okay because the other, you know, the bigger sellers are are covering that for us. So for instance, uh, we did put out the Spring album and we added a couple single sides to it. We put it out on CD. So again, great music needs to be out there. And um, one can say that, okay, because of Spotify and some of the streaming services, you know, in a sense, you know, it's more out there, but you don't have the curators pointing to it. You don't have somebody like at least us in our day saying, here's something you should listen to, or let me tell you the story behind this, which, you know, enhances the listening experience.
And our final track is The Ruttles, It's Looking Good. And you've got some interesting passages there, one of which I think is in the mid-90s where you um, you met up with Neil Innes and then you were expecting possibly a bit more like a musician or rock star, but you saw what an unassuming, gentle, wonderful guy. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of, again, in the book is, you know, what were my impressions if I meet somebody or their attitude, you know, to get it down to kind of share that. Um, with the reader, but um, I really uh, loved, you know, working with Neil. I just love the Ruddles album. So again, showing the the way Rhino did things. So Warner Brothers put out the original Ruddles album, which I have and loved. And then at a certain point, Bill Inglot, our ace sound guy in charge of, you know, mastering, he said, oh, and the, the Warner tape vaults, there's eight additional songs that were in the TV show that, you know, there wasn't room for on the album. So we did a CD, including those eight songs, you know, 20 song CD. So, uh, you know, Neil loved it and, you know, getting to know him and talking to him and finding out the mechanics and, you know, how he worked with Eric Idle and, you know, that's in, uh, in the book, but, um, one of his visits here, I did something really special. There's a friend of mine who has a house uh, that he fixed up in a really imaginative way, shall we say. And he has a hallway and he took the Bonzo dog bands, the outro in the intro of which Neil, of course, was a member, key member of the Bonzo dog band. And in that one, he put musical instruments on his wall with buttons so as you walk up by the way he recreated the musical bed of that of the intro and the outro and as you walk up the stairs you could push a button where there's one of the instruments and you could solo that instrument from his recording on the outro so i do have a picture of neil in that entryway and you know he just loved that in fact from that visit uh, there's a photo in the book again Gary Shafter on his wall. You know, the, the joke is the Great Wall of China. Well, it's not like this, the miles long wall in the country of China. It's, uh, you know, the glassware and the plates on his wall and how he fixed it up. And so Neil and I are standing in, in front of that. So, um, yeah, again, 
great experience. Um, uh, lots of good memories with uh, Neil Ennis. Towards the end of your time with Rhino, was it the fact that, I don't know, was the sort of clash with the more sort of broader commercial demands as Rhino gets swallowed up by a conglomerate? No, first of all, you know, Rhino, aside from doing what we were doing on a high level, it was also a very humane company when Richard and I were running it. And um, so, again, we were independent. At a certain point, we did a joint venture with Atlantic Records because they gave us access to a lot of the catalogs. So like um, the Rascals and Aretha Franklin and Rhino were basically managing that as part of the deal. And then a little bit later, as part of this big corporate thing, then they bought the other half of Rhino. So um, towards the end of uh, my time there, uh, in the last year or two, is uh, the industry's sales were declining and profits were declining because of the uh, illegal download. Right. Rhino's profits and sales were increasing. So um, the people at the Warner Music Group, you know, could have extended our contracts. But I think, um, you know, Roger Ames, who was head of the Warner Music Group at that time, for better or for worse, wanted his own person in there that, you know, would be beholden to him rather than these two successful guys, you know, who were successful apart from him. So basically, um, our contracts weren't renewed. And that's why I left Rhino. But I'd pretty much done everything that I felt I could do under, uh, you know, those constraints. And, you know, like I would have loved to have done the Dave Clark Five uh, catalog and the box set. Still to this day, the only major artist from the 60s that has not had a box set. That's Dave Clark for you. <laughs> and uh, But the other thing I was focusing on is I wanted to do movies with rock biopics like we had done the Frankie Lyman story, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Because if you're in a movie theater and you hear great rock music coming from those speakers, you know, it's like a great experience. So that's kind of what I was focused on doing and thinking that I would be able to do in leaving Rhino, which, you know, really didn't pan out. But in any event, I just uh, think that, you know, in retrospect, the timing was good, you know, as the industry has changed. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of great work at Rhino. Oh, I feel really happy about that. Well, Harold, it's uh, been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I, I do heartily recommend Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. It's a unique look or slice of music history. And it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Say the word and be my bride 
It's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good. I'm not throwing caution to the wind, oh no. Love is not an easy game to play. Though I may not be a man of words, yeah, yeah. There is one thing I feel obliged to say. It's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good. It's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good, it's looking good. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.